It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tydra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcast from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. My name is Nils and our co-host today is Michael. How are you, Michael, and would you like to introduce today's guests and topic? Great, thanks, Niels. Yes, be delighted to. Today's guest is Dr Gavin Mudd, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at Monash University. Dr Mudd has recently researched the abundancy or scarcity of rare earth elements to reach the conclusion that ample rare earths exist to scale up renewable energy supply. In order to discuss all things rare earth, Dr Mudd joins us by telephone today. How are you, Gavin? I'm actually uh, yeah, very hopeful. Thank you. Good. We always like to start these interviews by um, giving uh, our guests a bit of an interview, a bit of a idea of how you've come to this position in your uh, sustainability journey. Um, would you like to fill us in on that for you, please? Sure. I'll, I'll do it as quick as I can. But I guess when I was going through high school, in the, yes, it was the 1980s, but uh, things like global warming, um, the, the ozone layer problem was just being identified. Uh, a lot of the, the, the grand environmental challenges that we're, we're, we still face on a bigger scale now, but we're really just starting to hit the popular sort of science and, and so on. And so I sort of chose a career within engineering and um, I was lucky enough to start a degree at RMIT University in environmental engineering. And uh, within that, I uh, became interested in uh, um, groundwater and uh, mining issues and looking at the environmental impacts of mining. And so then went on to do my PhD you know, sort of in that area and have worked with community groups and Indigenous groups in Australia, pretty much all over Australia and even in many other parts of the world now. So, uh, But looking at it very much from a community perspective, not just taking an industry view or a government view or things like that, but really what does the science tell us? What's the, what's the data? What's the evidence? And um, therefore... You know, what's really going on? And I, I think to me that's been my journey is how to understand the environmental impacts of uh, extracting a finite resource. Thanks, and uh, fascinating and broad scope of experience there. So we're talking about rare earths. For those of us who aren't intimately familiar with our periodic table, can you tell us what elements are classified as rare earths? Well, very simply, there's 92 uh, elements that we know of naturally, that of which rare earths form 17 of them. And that's Chemically, in the way that science would look at it, is a whole family of elements called the lanthanide series of elements. And that's from lanthanum, cerium, uh, and through a whole range of other elements, including samarium, dysprosium, and a lot of other sort of uh, funky names, I guess. But, uh, and also including uh, yttrium and uh, scandium, which are, strictly speaking, not part of the, the lanthanide series of uh, elements in the periodic table of the elements, but are generally added into the family of what we call rare earth. So typically, whenever we talk about rare earth, you never find just lanthanum, just cerium, or just, say, 
samarium, you always find them all together in, in varying proportions. And so you haven't just got uh, one element or, say, two. You've generally got a whole family of elements present in, uh, in anything where you find rare earth. And, and talking about finding them, my understanding is that the term rare earth was coined probably about 100 years ago. Has mining expertise improved since then to make them more abundant than once thought? Well, I think it depends on which way you look at the numbers. If you look at the... Uh, let, let's take a, a, a kilogram of soil that you could find beneath the buildings at 3CR, beneath the uh, skyscrapers in, in any city or of any rock anywhere in the world, pretty much. If you look at crustal abundance, things like lanthanum and cerium um, are as abundant in the Earth's crust as copper. Some of the elements are actually more abundant than gold, for example. Some are actually as scarce as gold or as scarce as things like indium and um, or some of the platinum group elements, for example. So it depends on which element you're talking about as to whether we consider them sort of scarce or not. But when they first found them, they the minerals were considered to be very rare. And, so the, the, and they realised very quickly that because of the substitution that you get between lanthanum and cerium and the other rare earth elements, you always get the family present. So um, they're thought to be rare, and unfortunately that's the name that's sort of uh, stuck, but they're actually not rare, but they're mm-hmm. found quite abundantly in a range of contexts. And certainly from a, a crustal point of view, a lot of the rare earths are really not that rare. And why are they so important in our daily lives? They underpin a lot of modern technology. I mean, that's a really simple answer. But uh, if you look at the, um, the hard drives that we use, there are some rare earths that have excellent magnetic properties. There are others that have excellent optical properties. There are some that have uh, excellent alloying properties. And so varying rare earths will be used for different applications. Now, you can add some um, neodymium and dysprosium are particularly sought after for magnets. And if we think of what magnets are used for, they're used in turbines. So anywhere where you've got a turbine, such as a, a wind turbine or even a, even a conventional turbine in, say, a coal-fired power station, adding a bit of rare earth to the magnet makes that magnet more powerful, therefore it generates more electricity, and so therefore it actually makes that whole system a better technology. So same when rare earths, we can make the hard drives smaller, and therefore, you know, miniaturisation of a lot of other uh, electronic uh, goods that we now use on a daily basis. And for some things, there's certainly a military element to some of this, because if you look at samarium, it's used in the laser guidance systems for uh, missiles. So there's certainly a very strong military element to a lot of the use of rare earths, which is where, unfortunately, a lot of the politics kicks in as well. Gavin, perhaps you can tell us about the methodology you use to calculate the availability of rare earths? If you look at the mining industry, typically if you look at the copper industry or the copper sector, the gold sector, the coal sector, whichever way you look at it, a mine has to do some drilling, it has to do a lot of studies to say how big is the deposit they're mining. So let's just say it's uh, 100 million tonnes of rock that's got, say, copper in it. That rock typically has, say, 1% copper. Therefore, that's a million tonnes of copper contained in that rock or that ore as the industry would call it, and a million tonnes of copper at, say, let's say $5,000 per tonne, that's $5 billion worth of copper sitting in that. With copper, you often get some gold, you might get some silver, sometimes you might have cobalt or you know, other elements there or metals associated with that as well. But typically, mining has to go through all of those sort of studies and they have to report that to the market. So if they're listed on the stock exchange, they have to report that they, and they have to do that every year. So 
when you're looking at countries like Australia, Canada, South Africa, America, and, and elsewhere, and especially across Europe, there's an abundance of this sort of data that's around. So we know that rare earths are found in a huge variety of different types of mineral deposits. They can be found sometimes in mineral sands, so places that we mine for titanium and also for zircon also contain rare earths. Now, Australia used to be one of the biggest exporters of monazite minerals from rare, uh, mineral sands mining, uh, and we used to supply up to about half the world's uh, rare earth market up until about the 1990s when China took over. So we know that when you're looking at a lot of these things, there is a huge amount of data out there, and you add them all up one by one and look at each country as best you can and put the data together and what you can show is that we have a huge amount of rare earth. So it's certainly not a question of how much we know is already mineable. We already know of the deposits that are out there. We're still finding new deposits out there as well. And there's issues around grade and some of the other issues are really around the fact that at the same time you find rare earth, you always find uranium and thorium. And so the issues really come down to the radioactivity and the radiation exposure management of the uranium and thorium, especially the thorium, during any mining and processing of rare earth. But it really is as simple as that. Going through, adding up each project uh, in Australia and elsewhere and looking at it and saying, right, the world currently produces, I think, about 150-odd thousand tonnes per year. It's, you know, it might go up and down a tiny bit, but it has generally been growing strongly for the last 25, you know, 50 years. Right? Now, we've been able to show there's at least of the order of you know, 500 million tonnes to go. And that's not even, you know, there's probably parts of the world where you just can't find any data. And so there's known to be rare earths like Russia or, you know, some parts of China where the data is considered a state secret and not published. So, mm. um, so there's going to be a lot more out there than that. And that's actually, based on previous research we've been involved with, that's starting to approach the same abundance for mining that we, we um, say for copper and, and other metals. Mm. So, so rare earths are certainly not rare. It's uh, the mining and processing of them, the use of them, that's where the issues always really end up. Once the rare earth elements have been used in the various applications, can they be recovered and recycled? A lot of that depends on the exact application. It's, if you look at, a, um, say, an iPhone or any sort of smartphone, you look at uh, you know, some of the other things like the batteries or alloys, it's certainly possible technically, but some of them you've got transport costs, you've got logistics around actually collecting the source products that contain the rare earth, and sometimes those logistics and the costs of that are, are very prohibitive or the systems just aren't there. If we think of our current uh, you know, our old notebooks or laptops, our old TV screens that we get rid of, uh, we're only just starting to get good systems in place to make sure that we do recycle those. And at the moment, manufacturers are not re required to recycle or recover 100% of what they sell. It's what we call product stewardship. So... These sorts of things where government is looking at how to make sure we do increase recycling so we can capture the valuable metals contained in a lot of electronic waste particularly. These systems are growing and they're, they're certainly growing in coverage and so on. But at the moment, a lot of the products that, that use rare earths, for example, generally end up in the scrap heap. They generally end up in landfill. So they're not always, they're not always easy to recover, but they, they could be if the economics and the logistics and the, the policy settings of... Uh, are certainly improved to achieve that. If there are any priorities for the use of rare earth elements? Well, I suppose it depends on who gets the priority. What's more important, military use of things like scenarium 
or environmental development of renewable energy technologies from things like neodymium, um, dysprosium, and um, some of the other heavier rare earth elements. So in that sense, when you're looking at a, a lot of the broad sort of international debate about rare earth, I, I think certainly some of the noise that's created around rare earth certainly relates to military you know, implications because countries like America are, you know, there's certainly sectors of the American sort of establishment that are very concerned that their military uh, and their technology uh, is dependent on China in that sense. So they want to be independent. And so there's, there's priorities around that and that drives some of the debate. But I think also there's a, a more important public interest debate, which is basically renewable energy and the electronic gadgets that uh, you know, consumers like. We, a lot of us, especially in the West, like our smartphones, our laptops and things, and certainly the rare earths, and there's a you know, small amount of rare earths involved in all of these things. So where are the, the, the priorities? So I think that that's something that we need to understand not only where the rare earths come from, but also the environmental and social cost of, uh, of mining them. And I think they are worth mining, but we need to manage the mining and supply of them well and also make sure that we do continue to improve recycling rates and stewardship so that we, we don't just keep chucking them down the landfill and wasting you know, a very precious resource. Can rare earths be found in Australia? I think earlier you said they can. Yeah, Australia's got one of the biggest in the world. Okay. If you look at, um, and it's actually already an operating mine, which is even more surprising in some ways. Australia's got rare earths at Olympic Dam, and Olympic mm-hmm. Dam at the moment is a um, huge copper-gold-silver deposit amongst one of the most valuable deposits of its type in the world. And that's just on the copper, uranium, gold and silver. And if I just briefly explain some numbers, it contained uh, copper at Olympic Dam based on the sort of the most recent sort of resource estimates released by BHP Billiton would be of the order of around about $600 billion just for the copper. There'd be of the order of about $200, $250 billion of gold, something of the order of about $150 to $250 billion for the uranium, depending on which price you use and I suppose what, how optimistic you are about future price increases, but, and then maybe you know, 5 or $10 billion for the silver. So add all that up, you're, you're looking you know, in broad terms at roughly $1 trillion worth of contained metal value in the copper, uranium, gold and silver at Olympic Dam. But the rare earth uh, is roughly valued, depending on the price, if you use a very low price, rare earths are valued at $1 trillion alone. Now, if you use a sort of a, a more optimistic price, you can take that up to 2 3 or even $4 trillion if they've used the higher prices from a few years ago. So in that way, like I've always argued for years now that Olympic Dam could turn off their uranium extraction and then add rare earths extraction. They would add more value and therefore less political risk by not extracting uranium. Uh, and do more for the planet. But at the moment, um, BHP and formerly Western Mining Corporation or WMC have always ignored the value of rare earths at Olympic Dam. So, well, I guess we'll see which way all that goes. But the other projects in Australia is the Mount Weld project in Western Australia, which is uh, owned by Linus Corporation. And they've hit a lot of controversy over their refinery that they've built in Malaysia. But there's many other projects around Australia and deposits that contain rare earths. Uh, mineral sands um, deposits do in a mineral called monazite. Um, so Australia's certainly got a large capacity to re-enter the rare earth market, and certainly the, the development of Mount Weld a, a few years ago has allowed Australia to do that, but still at a very small scale. 
So I think Australia has a, a, a much bigger opportunity there, but we're not taking advantage of it at the moment. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. We're speaking to Dr Gavin Mudd about rare earths and his recent research which shows they're nowhere near as rare as um, people have um, told us. Just following on that question, Gavin, you said one billion from, say, Olympic Dam in the non-rare earths, but a thousand times that in the value of the rare earths. So, rea- oh, it's actually equal about. If you look at one, about one trillion dollars, you know, and it's, it's just, it, it sounds almost like a, a bad Austin Powers joke in some yep. ways, but it is about one trillion dollars from the contained value for the copper, uranium, gold, and silver, yep. and at least one trillion dollars for the rare earths. So, okay, sorry, trillion. Um, so there's at least equal value. Equal so value. if you delete the uranium, um, add the rare earths, you're adding at least five to ten times more value from rare earths than you get from the uranium. Mm. Okay. So obviously extremely significant for Australia's balance of trade, or potentially so. The rel- oh, definitely. It could be a significant industry, definitely. Yeah. So the relative growth rate of this industry, how does that compare to GDP, is it? Well, I suppose rare earths went through quite a boom over the last sort of uh, 10 to 15 years. And that slowed down quite a lot, and that's largely global financial crisis related, but also the fact that there's been policy out of China that's restricted their exports of rare earths, and so that sort of dampened demand because a lot of people were concerned about their ability to get a, a reliable supply. So there's certainly sort of that sort of dampening of the market over the last sort of, I suppose, four to five years. But certainly the, if you look at the, the growth rate of sort of similar metals like indium and so on, often those metals that are critically related to infrastructure like renewable energy, but also things like electronics and TVs and so on, they've generally grown at a much faster growth rate than GDP. Mm-hmm. So prices can go up and down and certainly during the height of the boom and some of the concerns around rare earth, you know, uh, rare earth supply, then certainly the, the prices can sometimes go up much, much faster than that and boom, and then you know, just as quickly go bust. And, and people forget that things that go up very fast often come down very fast. So, but so that aside, it... I think certainly there's, a, um, there's certainly a strong argument to show that a lot of the, the metals involved in either renewable energy technologies or even other metals important in electronics like indium um, have certainly generally grown faster than GDP. So just on that price factor, I understand it has been a bit of a, a roller coaster. but is the long-term price trend higher than inflation or tracking it or is it getting easier to get and up below I think it's, it's Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, well, one of the things that when you look at, uh, at price, like often you know, it, it, people try to simplify it as a simple function of supply and demand. And it's not just that. Rare earths are very difficult to extract and then purify. The products that you're using, you know, rare earths in, generally require a very pure form of the particular element to make them work properly. So that requires very specialist refining and so on. So that they are an expensive metal, depending on which exact rare earth metal that you're looking for or element. But so there's a lot of factors that come to affect the actual price of a of an individual rare earth element. And so it, it's really hard to sort of unpack all the factors sometimes. It's uh, sometimes perception about supply scarcity as opposed to resource scarcity. Sometimes that can play a big role, which is what we saw a few years ago with the prices booming as China limited their exports. And of course, now they've been required by the World Trade Organization to open up their exports again. There's a lot of things that sort of can push prices up and down uh, so I think at the moment the, sort of the jury's still out on that. It's generally been a very small sector of the global mining industry. It's got potential to be much bigger, 
but at the moment, I think it's it's too hard to sort of say what the long-term price trend is. Because if you keep mm. supplying more, of course, often the price, you know, the unit cost will come down, yep. and that helps pull prices down. But that's a different issue than just the amount of resources that are in the ground, etc. Mm. So, yeah, prices are a, are a complex issue. Speaking of this complexity of extracting them, obviously when these are in my um, rechargeable batteries, my LCD screen, my solar panels and my iPhone, they're in a safe form. But is there major questions of toxicity or danger in the exploration and, and processing phase? Or are they just are well, they safe there the, too? The things that people need to... Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because one of the arguments, of course, that China used um, before the World Trade Organization in limiting their exports was the environmental and public health impacts of their rare earth industry. Now, a lot of that, I think, was, was not so much due to the actual toxicity of rare earth elements themselves, a lot of that is driven by the uranium and especially the thorium. Right, so you've got radiation issues that you need to deal with. And we're not dealing with levels that are typically related to the nuclear industry. We're dealing with levels in between, say, the, a well-operated uranium ion, so to speak, even though the product is questionable. But in that sense, you're dealing with sort of modest um, radiation levels, but in the wrong context where it's not handled properly. And certainly this is what's been uh, driving a lot of the debate in Malaysia is the former refinery at Bukumera, in Malaysia, which was known as the, um, the Asian rare earth plant that was operated by Mitsubishi, they weren't operating a lot of their chemical processes and their waste management, respecting the fact that they were dealing with radioactive waste. So they had issues with significant radiation exposures of workers. They were dumping waste in what we would now consider to be very inappropriate ways, either on farming fields or making uh, building products out of it. These are all the things that we know how to assess and manage if we recognise it properly. I've always been saying as much as I would think that uranium mining and nuclear industries are, I think are, should be a, a relic of the past, a, a dinosaur of a different era, I don't think that that means that when you're dealing with radiation issues with rare earth that we, we can't do it. Mm. I think we can, but we need to make sure that we, we recognise that we are dealing with a radioactive material, a low-level radioactive material. The refining and processing of rare earth materials can concentrate that in some form. And so those materials and those wastes need to be managed accordingly. And unfortunately, in China and elsewhere, we don't have a good example of that. And the community in Malaysia, one of the key reasons why they've been opposing the new refinery there is because they've lived that experience. And to them, it, it looks like a lot of the promises that are being made around that um, are exactly the same as they experienced with uh, Bukumera. So when things aren't managed properly, rare earth can cause significant problems. Uh, I think myself, being an engineer and being involved with these sorts of issues now for many years, they can be managed and they should be able to be managed, but you need to identify them. And I think for Australia, one of the potential new rare earth projects on the horizon is the Toongai project up in New South Wales. It's got a very low-level uranium uh, resource in the rare earth deposit, as well as zirconium and rare earths. Now, that project has just received approval uh, very recently, I think, from the New South Wales government. But it's not really a standard mine. It's effectively a chemical factory. And so within the uh, environmental impact assessment for that, it's probably one of the most detailed radiological assessments I've seen. And I think, you know, and this is something I'd say, you know, very, uh, very carefully, but I, I've, I think the radiological assessment for that project, I would certainly say is better than a lot than I've seen for any uranium mine in Australia. Mm, interesting. So they certainly get it, and they've, they've certainly recognised the fact that they've got 
very sensitive issues they need to manage. So, so given those issues, this may be a dumb question, but are there effective substitutes for rare earths being developed? Um, some people are trying to look at them, but the magnetic properties, certainly you can substitute from sometimes one of the more expensive sort of rarer rare earths, because some of them are at, uh, in terms of the relative concentrations between, say, lanthanum and cerium versus, say, samarium, that very extremely low concentrations of some of the very particular ones like samarium I mean, they are limited in their supply, even if you mine on a larger scale. So there's certainly people looking at potential substitutes, but often there just isn't at the moment. But it does depend on exactly which element you're looking at. And sometimes there are substitutes, but it means instead of having an iPhone that you can carry in your hand, it means you'd have to carry it in your backpack sort of thing. <laughs> so, so sometimes there's those sorts of trade-offs where, sure, there are substitutes, but you lose the functionality yep. that you can achieve if you do use the rare earths. Why would people engage in scaremongering with the false claim rare earths are too limited to supply a scale-up of renewable energy supply? Uh, There's probably a few different sort of reasons for that. One, I think a lot of people aren't as closely sort of tied into watching now mining companies and the sort of the various resources and reporting that's done. And so when you add them all up, and it does take a lot of manual labour to do that, but myself and some PhD students and so on that we've been working on this sort of stuff for a while now, these are some of the questions we've been looking at. Because if we know we've got enough, the question is not about how much is in the ground. The question then becomes a supply question. Mm-hmm. How much is being mined? Which type of deposits? What's the split between the heavy rare earth, the light rare earth? and so on, what's the uranium concentrations, and especially the thorium, they're the sort of issues that really come to mind. I think part of the scaremongering is related to military concerns. You know, I think there's also the other concern is the fact that the mining is generally the very low-value side of the industry. The manufacturing into particular products, whether that be electronics, you know, optical devices, or even military technologies, the manufacturing is where the high-value added sort of, uh, you know, economic sort of benefits come in. And so typically that's done in Japan, it's done in America and Europe. And so China, I think, has increasingly said, well, hang on, we want that economic benefit for ourselves, and then we'll export the high-value products, not the low-value raw materials. So there's a lot of people who have been making these arguments, I think, for various reasons, and you know, probably could easily be labelled as some good reasons, some uh, maybe nefarious reasons. But I think at the end of the day, it's based on a false premise that the... We already, we've already drilled everywhere. We know where every rare earth deposit is on the planet, and actually we don't. We've, we know of heaps of deposits around the world. We're still finding more, and there's many mines, actually, that are already mining you know, ores that contain rare earths that are not being extracted. So, so the question is not really a resource question. The, the, the issue is a supply question, and the fact that you know, some 95% of world supply comes from one country. China, which of course is run by a communist government that can dictate terms on what they're doing. So, and of course, many other parts of the world don't like that. Within reason, all countries are entitled to strategic sovereign policies. Some countries stockpile rare earth elements, and other countries prefer firms to sell to the highest bidder. Do you have a preference for either policy? Not really. I, I think the question comes down to a sort of, I think, a, often a false understanding of how much is in the ground versus actually what's going on in supply terms. But I think it, it depends on what the use is. If you're looking at a, a use around renewable energy, I, I think trying to stockpile something, I think, is only going to limit supply into the market. So I think there's, there's broader questions there that a, a humble environmental engineer can sort of address. But certainly there are some arguments in order to maintain a stockpile. 
Australia doesn't maintain a stockpile of our own uh, petroleum products, for example. Mm. And so yep. unlike America, which does. So there's issues there that if we got cut off from global supply, Australia would be in dire straits. So there's certainly some arguments to, to, to support a stockpile. But again, I think it, it depends on what your objectives are, whether your objectives are protecting industry, protecting public interest, you know, or protecting military interest as well. I, I think it really depends on where you're coming at it. And um, I guess that's where the debate's up to. Just back on um, your discussions, Gavin, of the fact that we're not actually extracting them from any of the mines at the moment. What's the position? Are they in the tailings? Is it going to be a relatively easy matter if we change our mind to go back and pull those out of the tailings stockpiles or what? Or are they in some way lost in the process? Well, I mean, Australia does extract rare earth at the moment from the Mount Well mine in Western Australia. It's the only operating dedicated rare earth mine in Australia. There'd be any mineral sands mine in Australia would also be concentrating monazite, which is basically a rare earth phosphate mineral associated with all the mineral sands. But that would generally be dumped as a waste product. So typically, if you take Olympic Dam, then um, it would be that all the rare earths are ending up in the tailings. And they're above ground, tailings can be sort of dug up and processed again. And we've seen that in the gold industry. We've seen that sometimes in the copper industry or, or elsewhere. So it's uh, fairly straightforward. Some ways, if you look at the gold industry, for example, there's gold tailings in Western Australia and, and even in central Victoria and, and elsewhere that sometimes have been processed three, four or five times over 100 years in order to get a bit more metal out. And so after 20 years of weathering in the surface environment, Sometimes that makes the gold more available. Sometimes there's new processing technology which comes along, like carbon in pulp technology that was invented in the 1970s for the gold industry and, and basically helped revolutionise the gold industry because it could suddenly now process extremely low-grade ore instead of higher-grade ore. And so that, that technology was very, very efficient at small capital cost and basically made the gold industry revolutionised overnight. So the, there's potential there, I guess. It's a matter of... Uh, a lot of these things in the way the world works come down to economics. And sometimes economics um, revolve around environmental constraints. Sometimes it's around you know the price and the market and supply and demand, where the demand's coming from, where the supply is coming from. That means that, say, monazite in Australia is uneconomic in the current sort of uh, rare earth market globally, but 20 years ago uh, it, it used to be. So we'll see I guess there's certainly potential there but at the moment it's uh, certainly a, a wasted resource. You've been listening to Dr Gavin Mudd a researcher at Monash University on sustainable mining on the BZE radio program. Thank you very much Gavin. Have you any last words you want to tell us? Or? Well I think that the, the central point I mean hopefully people have understood is that we're not limited by the resources that can underpin the renewable energy technologies we know we need and that are already being built around the world. So I think the, the, the arguments are not about you know, how much resources we have on the ground. The, resources, the, the arguments always come down to the environmental impacts of any resource extraction, whether that's iron or gold or rare earth or whatever. So I think there's certainly enough to be able to, uh, at least from my understanding of the numbers, to power renewable energy around the world. It's a matter of getting everything else right as well. Well, thank you very much, Gavin. Um, another bright spot on the solutions rather than the problems. And uh, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.